Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Broadband access across America has been a hot topic given how the pandemic has magnified the importance of keeping people connected for remote work, education, and entertainment. The current standard for high-speed broadband is 25 megabits per second for download and 3 megabits per second for uploads. This standard has met the consumer demand and has served us well during the pandemic. But some members of Congress and the current administration have advocated for raising broadband speeds to a symmetrical 100 megabits up, 100 megabits down, known as 100-100, as the new normal. But this is not necessary as a standard for the average consumer to have good internet access. So where are all these calls for new standards coming from? Today's guest is Richard Bennett. Richard came on my podcast a few weeks ago to discuss the expanding commercial use of 12 gigahertz spectrum band, but we also briefly touched on this idea of the 100-100 symmetry. Since this is such an important topic, we decided that we should come back sooner to do an Explain to Shane talk about it. Richard is the co-creator of Wi-Fi and the founder of High Tech Forum. As I mentioned last time he came on the podcast, Richard is often my go-to person for engineering knowledge around how networks function. He joins us today to discuss why 100-100 is very expensive and not necessary to connect more Americans to the internet. Actually, it potentially means less internet access as this is a very costly proposition. It could also mean consumers would end up shouldering a heavy cost burden to meet this requirement for broadband that is not a technical requirement for consumers to use the internet to meet their demands. Richard, it's great to have you back on Explain to Shane so soon, but you brought up a topic, at, or maybe I brought it up at the very tail end of our last recording about symmetrical versus asymmetrical internet. And I thought it was important to talk about this relatively soon since it is becoming a big topic around broadband deployment, and especially here in Washington with several pieces of legislation that's come forward. And what, you know, I think it's one of those things where like people like round numbers. So 100, 100, if you don't know anything about it, sounds like a great idea, but it's confusing me because I think I don't understand why they want to change the definition to be something that most people do not have, nor do they need. So you are my go-to guy. Can you walk us through those of us who have been spending a lot of time on broadband, probably what we're really using and and what, you know, other than being aspirational, do we need 100, 100? I think. This is one of those things where I get kind of conspiratorial with it and tend to believe that the symmetrical parameter in setting broadband speeds is kind of outcome driven. So if what we want to have is a justification for pulling fiber optic cable all over the U.S., then we have to come up with a we have to make a requirement out of one of the unique properties that fiber optic cable has. And this has been going on since really the in the 90s when people in the policy space discovered fiber optic cables and decided, well, we need to have that everywhere because it's like way better than, than plain old copper wire telephone cable and way better than cable TV, the cable TV network. And so they got all excited. And I was one of those people. I mean, in the 90s, I actually started working with fiber optics in the 80s, but in the 90s, when the normal people discovered it, I thought it was like a really cool thing. And it'd be a great, it'd be like a game changer. I love that you said in the normal people just discovered it. It's <laughs> like we were all working, having a good time. And then you people found it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it actually goes back to the 60s when AT&T figured out, you know, fiber optic cables. It's that old. But yeah, so that'd be great. Hypothetically, that should enable a whole lot of applications. If there are things that people want to do that require equal uploads and downloads, then 
I mean, it turns out it's not the only way to achieve that. You can do that with wireless too. It's just, and you can actually get symmetrical behavior out of the cable network. You can get symmetrical behavior out of the telephone. I mean, it's always been an option, but we have chosen to allocate more bandwidth on the downstream side than on the upstream side because there's more traffic to move. So if I have a, a one gigabit symmetrical connection, that means I have two gigabits of bandwidth to work with. And I've decided to allocate the same amount to upstream as downstream, even though the upstream is going to be idle 95% of the time with that kind of a ratio. So I, I think it's it just, we've backed, it's a corner that the advocates of fiber optic recabling the nation with fiber optic cable have stumbled into because they were trying to justify an outcome that was predetermined. So if you just start with a blank sheet of paper and say, what do we need to support the applications we have today? And that's the baseline. This should be the minimum that, you know, you have to provide that level of service to get subsidy funding from the government. And then there's maybe like a sort of call that the bronze plan. And there's a silver plan that's a little bit faster. And then maybe there's some gold or platinum plan where, you know, where you actually do get symmetrical gigabit, but I'm not even sure even at the highest level, there are that many people that really want things to be perfectly symmetrical. I guess rather than saying want, it's like I use the word need lightly because, but you know, I love to bother you and ask you questions about my my network system all the time. I love my Wi-Fi router, by the way, that you chose for me. But so for, <laughs> for me, who is, you know, sitting, this is my seventh Zoom call for the day. You know, how much do I really need? I mean, I, I don't think I probably ever really need a hundred. Certainly, if you if you have a bandwidth monitor on your computer, and there are, there are actually tools you can get that'll show you how much upstream and downstream. There's actually a built-in thing in Windows that does that, and there are things that do that for Macs. You'll find that even when you're when you're surfing the web, you're limited by the capacity of the web server to supply data to you. So it turns out the the thing that determines how quickly web pages load. As long as you have a network connection that's 15 megabits per second or more, mm -hmm. the network is not the constraining factor. The constraining factor is the server. You have web servers that are being used by a thousand users at the same time, and they have a limited you know, amount of CPU power. They have a limited amount of, of IO bandwidth. And actually the, the real constraint in the whole, in the whole system is how fast the web server can get data off its hard drive. I know you've written about this. I think you and I have talked about this a couple of years ago was like, I went, I went to my, my hometown paper, the Lincoln Journal Star in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I had to get off. It was so painful because you couldn't read any of the stories, but it wasn't because the stories wouldn't load. It was all the sidebar ads that were mm -hmm. slowing the entire process. So I always think that's a really interesting point because people don't think about how many different things are going on when you you think you're just loading a website, all the back end of what that website's trying to bring forward to you. Yeah, I mean, in, in the typical web page, there are about 35 different elements that come from different places. I mean, there's the the basic content, the pictures that go with it, maybe the you know stylistic stuff for the page, the title and all that. But yeah, the ads are the things that really, they're, they're the slowest to load, but they're the most important to the website operator because that's where their money comes from. Right. And, you know, what Google has been, you know, has long time been a big proponent of symmetrical connections at high speeds, because for their ad business, that's great. I mean, the uh -huh. quicker you can move, 
you know, the consumer behavior info up to the to the ad merchant and run the auction and choose an ad and download it, you know, the more money you can make. They don't want to be seen, you know, the network has it's got super high capacity, then, you know, they're kind of hoping that people won't really notice the burden that loading the ads takes on the overall experience. And we want, you know, everybody agrees that we should all have a great experience on the internet to, to the extent that we can, given the nature of some of the content. I mean, but even that being said, we, we know that, you know, through this last year plus with COVID, you know, so many people have been working educating, entertaining themselves online. And I don't think they're, I mean, other than occasionally my electricity goes out, but <laughs> I don't, and even then I'm like, just go get my anchor brick and see if I can keep doing what I was doing before. To me, it seems like there's a policy discussion that is not quite being had here. And a hundred, a hundred being the, being pushed as the new normal is actually subterfuge for something else that it's trying to get done here. But I imagine once you go to a hundred, a hundred, what's it, what's right now we're at 25, three down. Is that right? 25, three. Yeah. yeah. So redefining at a hundred, a hundred knocks a lot of people out of saying that they have broadband. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, it, it and it, it makes the case for government intervention, massive government intervention, and essentially rewiring the country with a technology that only the government can pay for at this point. It knocks all the, all the, pretty much all the private actors out of business. And, and for what? I mean, the yeah, a lot of people are frustrated with their ISPs, but there is going to be an ISP in the picture, regardless of who's providing the service. And if they're constrained by government decisions about where to pull cables and who gets it first, because, you know, face it, rewiring the country with fiber optics is a 10-year project. I mean, well, the most optimistic estimates are that it, it, it'll take five years. And it seems unnecessary when, and this idea of future-proofing is something else I want to touch on with you, because I think, what if we'd future-proofed 10 years ago with what was in vogue 10 years ago, we wouldn't be looking at what we're looking at now. And I know this with the big challenge we've been talking about the last year, the unserved versus underserved, and God love Elon Musk pushing the edge on lots of things, but one of them is he's you know throwing a bunch of satellites out, and we have people that are actually on Starlink and feeling pretty good about it. We have, you know, OneWeb's re-orchestrating themselves, Project Kuiper over at Amazon's getting up to speed. And there's a lot of opportunities to bring service to people that is not 100% fiber to fiber. You're going to get fiber to the home maybe at some point if you need it, but you don't need that fiber to be 100% from the point of connectivity for the... Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally bits don't really care what kind of medium they're moving over. No. It can be coax, it can be wireless, it can be Starlink, it can be 5G. Like, when did when did the wire become the most important factor in this overall system in which, in fact, the kind of the whole point of the internet is that the internet protocol doesn't really care what the communications medium is. It's Just, really you cool. It's agnostic. Yeah. Yeah. And then that, I it, mean, it needs to knock out all this last three or four years, it's all been ramping up to 5G, which is wireless. And this administration has just like dropped the thought of, we just haven't heard 5G come out of anyone's names, but we also don't have a head of NTIA. We don't have an interagency process that's currently in yeah, place. Yeah. But I guess why I keep kind of like, I'm like, what, which part of this equation am I missing? Walk through this with me for a second, because I love that Brendan Carr took the time to do this op-ed last week where he cataloged how much money we have been throwing at the broadband idea that has actually been approved by... Congress and the previous administration, we had $9.2 billion to support build out of high-speed service for millions of unserved families over the next 10 years. 
11.2 billion for extended broadband to more Americans through second phases. These are all different programs. 3.2 billion for subsidizing internet service for low-income Americans. That was approved by Congress. 7.1 billion to support internet connections for students. 9 billion over the next 10 years to bring 5G to rural America. 1.9 billion for carriers to upgrade insecure infrastructure, i.e. the rip and replace on Huawei and ZTE. 190 billion from the Department of Education and 360 billion to the Treasury Department for internet-specific programming. Yet no funds have actually been spent to date. So and all of a sudden, the new thing is 100-100. And I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about this issue and putting, thinking we're putting money towards it. The money's not actually going out the door. And now we're changing the parameters completely to something that I think is going to be very difficult to accomplish when we're trying to, you know, we don't, we don't know if we're staying in this hybrid environment. We don't know when people are going back to, to work. You know, students, I feel for them terribly if the you know, ones that aren't having a school experience, but, but online. And this, this new 100 but 100 and only fiber and not talking about Wi-Fi, which a lot of people are living off of, sounds a little nuts to me. Well, I think what it is, is it's, there's some fingerprints of some players in Washington who have been advocating for a nationalized broadband network for about 20 years, right? People like Susan Crawford and Tim Wu, who's the internet influencer, the chief influencer for the Biden administration. I mean, they don't really have policy advisors there. They just have influencers. They've been wanting that sort of thing for a long time. And, and actually, the rhetoric about future-proof networks, they were saying that same thing in the 90s. And so the symmetrical high-speed fiber optic network was a 90s vision of a future-proof network. And of course, the irony is that in the 20 years that have elapsed since people started talking about that in a fairly common way in, in the policy realm, we've seen the rise of mobile broadband. And so this is the one thing that the future-proof vision, uh, future-proofed wires can't provide for you is mobility. And it turns out that mobility is more important to us. The mobility and the convenience of wireless connections are more important to people than having just some arbitrarily high-capacity upload channel that you're never going to use. According to Cisco's forecasts, uh, over 70% of the internet protocol traffic in the whole world will be wireless by in the next couple of years. And so these are the networks that people choose, right? And, and in fact, even when people buy services like the fiber optic, fiber to the home services like Fios and and the ones that the, the telcos are building, you know, when in a home, people access those through Wi-Fi. Yeah. I mean, I guess the analogy which I've used for people is saying, it's like we, we decided everyone not only wants a car, they deserve a car, but now everyone is going to have to have a Rolls Royce or a, a Tesla. And there's nothing that's going to be allowed in between that. It doesn't count. And it's Yeah. Just, I mean, to me, it's like they're telling us we have to eat organic heritage <laughs> kale instead of, you know, whatever, what we want. Yeah, because no, I mean, the, the modality of, of broadband use or internet use 20 years ago was, you know, everybody sitting at a desk with a computer on their desk, sitting in their chair with their mouse and their keyboard, you know, loading web pages. I mean, that was a thing. And but it's, you know, how do people use it today? Well, it's in your hand and you're, you know, on the go. And, and soon we'll do that with like virtual reality glasses and stuff. And we won't even have to hold the handset. It'll just be you know, built in. And it turns out the thing that really matters most in both broadband policy, I think, and also in the personal experience of the internet is you want the connectivity to be pervasive. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, we want the option of, you know, connecting to the internet and using that to enhance the experience, you know, whatever it is. 
And it turns out the wired connection mode thing is just some old fashioned out of the 19th century concept of, you know, like a telegraph operator sitting there with their key, you know, sending, sending dots and dashes across the, the world. But that's, we want it to be, you know, we want networking to be just sort of a seamless part of everyday life. So, I mean, the network has to adapt to, to us and we don't have to adapt to the network anymore. We don't have to sit at a desk with a, you know, looking at a screen and, and stuck in that one location if we don't want to. Just think of the wonders it could do for the obesity problem in the U.S. if people are free to move around. <laughs> not have to be tethered to a, to a wire. Well, that makes sense as to why our former FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, had taken these steps. He's saying 100 isn't maybe enough. Maybe we need to go to a, you know, a, a thousand in certain places. And it just seems like we've fallen out of touch with the goal, which is getting more people connected, not necessarily speed. Yeah, I, I saw that Wheeler was on the communicators a week ago. Mike Powell was on the most recent one. And he said some really peculiar things. I mean, they, they asked him, you know, like, who would he recommend to be the next permanent chair of the FCC, kind of looking to see if he was going to endorse acting chair Rosenworcel. And, and he, I mean, he wasn't very explicit, but I sensed there was a little bit of, there may be some bad feelings between the two of them. And I, and I recall during the Wheeler, Wheeler's reign at the FCC, towards the end of it, Commissioner Rosenworcel was, was critical of a lot of the agency actions feeling that, I mean, from the beginning, she felt like the 25-3 standard was not ambitious enough. And I think in some respect, I mean, that is somewhat correct because a three megabits up, upstream has always seemed to me be a, just a bit constrained. I mean, I think probably if the, the correction that needs to be made to the standard is something like 25.5 or 25.6 or 25.8, maybe even 25.10, but not anything beyond that. And so, you know, Wheeler didn't like those criticisms. And so now her aspirational thing that she's promoting is, is 100 symmetrical, which is the same thing that she was promoting when Wheeler was the chairman of the FCC. And so now he's like outbidding her. He says, oh, no, that's not, that's not nearly aspirational enough today. We need gigabit. We need to be able to have, you know, 995 unused bits per second of bandwidth on the upstream side on every connection. Like, what is, what's going on here? It really seems to be more kind of petty Washington, D.C. politics than a sober assessment of what people's actual needs are and where the policy should go. Well, I do think going back to 5G, there has been a lot, and I like to say next generation networks because 5G I realize is mobile, which is very important, but there's a lot going on in the network space. And we have software defined networking coming in. There's We've seen what is continuing to move on with you know standards around things like open network, because the entire network that you have worked on for most of your career is continuing to evolve. And we all felt like it was going to a very good place. As a business, yes, I might want 100-100 because I'm exceptionally data intense and I'm doing a lot of content delivery. I'm pushing out content as well. And that, that would make sense to me, but I'd also as a business be willing to pay for that. As an individual user or somebody who's got a couple of kids that are at home on their on their Zoom teaching, somebody upstairs watching Netflix, I still don't see how you would use all of that. And then the insistence on that that has to be the the lowest part of the tier where we've just seen so much investment in network opportunity. We, we see a lot of you know people that are really looking to get as many more people connected with this funding. I think we're taking a huge left turn on where we need to go spend money and it's not going to be a net value yeah. to citizens. 
Yeah, I mean, we need we need networks that are more flexible, more pervasive, more adaptable. The software control. We never really realized back in the in the days when when the SEC started making standards for or definitions of broadband. There's really no answer to that question of what the definition of broadband is that works for in all cases. You know, I think the answer to the question is, you know, you need a software defined network that can adapt dynamically to the needs of whatever applications you're running. If you're the kind of person that every once in a while wants to do a complete offsite backup of, you know, your hard drive, you should be able to get the upstream capacity to do that quickly when you need it and not have to pay for it you know, the rest of the month when you're not doing that. I mean, so maybe you, you know, maybe you take a, a backup, you know, once a month, but do you have to pay for that? Like every month, you know, that you have to pay for that capacity for that ability to do that thing when you're not using it. And so the, the whole concept of like, you know, we buy a service that meets certain definable parameters that serves the needs of regulators because it gives them something they can verify and hold companies accountable, but it's not really all that consistent with the way people use networks and what we actually need to get out of our network. And so it needs to be flexible across the range of applications that we that we use. And if it can give us that at a low price by moving band by reallocating by allocating bandwidth dynamically between people who aren't using their connection and people who are at any given time, that's great. But how do you square that? kind of network dynamism and efficiency with notions like net neutrality and you know your network has to meet some predefined standard that the FCC basically pulled out of the air you know it's this whole adversarial relationship between regulators and service providers it's really the i think probably the most toxic thing that i've seen in broadband policy in in the few years that that i've been involved in it and so really we need to see this more as a partnership yeah, I think that the measurements have become a bone of contention rather than aspirational, which is unfortunate, mm. especially because we know, I mean, there's a lot of us that run around all day long, not touching a wire. We're really happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. it all works. And I, God bless all of you smart engineers who figured out how to make all the zeros and ones behave and do really, you know, just amazing things. So Richard, I appreciate you coming back on and explaining to us another part of the mystery of, of networks and, and how they work. And I hope that people are listening to you because we have a very good system. Getting more of that system out there to people is is the goal. But if you gave me a hundred right now, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I'll let you yeah. borrow some of it. I know you would know what to do with it. <laughs> well, I mean, most of the time I don't need it. So, I mean, it'd be nice to have in, in whatever rare occasions when I really needed it. I mean, so I can download something really fast, but that's what a minute of my day. Do I want to pay for that? I'll, yeah, no. I mean, I think the the problems here are that the policy, certain aspects of the policy community, which is probably not the necessarily the best informed or the smartest people, want this whole marketplace to be all neat and tidy. So we, we have like one network that the government supplies all the networks. You know, the speeds are dictated by regulators, and that's what we all have all the time. That That is one approach and that, you know, there's a certain appeal there. But, you know, if you look at the history of technology innovation in any field and especially in networking there's never been just this one uniform technology one uniform approach i mean it's always been as far as data networks go it's always been really messy and chaotic and people doing a lot of really goofy looking things and you know and that's what's going on now and i think it's wonderful elon musk and and jeff bezos fighting it out to see who can build the best 
low earth orbit satellite network. I think that is fantastic. And we shouldn't do anything. I mean, I think both those ideas are about half crazy. But, you know, all, all true innovations really do look like they're half crazy to, to begin with, except for the ones that look like they're fully crazy. So the last thing in the world I want to do is say, well, you know, we're, we've decided that the Supreme Soviet five-year plan for broadband production says that we must have X speed up, X speed down, and that's all there is to it. I could do away with it. Just let people go nuts and let their imaginations, let human imagination dictate what we're going to, how we're going to build networks and how we're going to build, just like we do, how you build apps that run on the networks. Right. The innovation has been amazing. I mean, especially, I mean, as we've seen how quickly we've, we're getting answers to the challenge of COVID we didn't have a year ago. And it is a combination of both technology and human ingenuity and all the pharmaceuticals, but it's because we Absolutely. let people have, yeah, you know, they got out there. So, well, well, and government did play a role in that. I mean, we had the willingness, which is probably the one thing that Trump administration got right was Project Warp Speed. If companies know they're going to get paid to ramp up manufacturing ahead of the approval of the drugs, then, you know, they'll ramp up manufacturing and you'll, you'll take that five-year timeline for the typical vaccine and compress it to eight months. And you're going to end up with the most fantastic vaccines we've ever had. That's great. So the government, and we do need the government to subsidize, you know, the service to the poor people in both urban and rural areas, you know, who can't afford, really can't afford to pay $10 a month for broadband. I mean, the idea that we just like, there's so much waste and, and profit in the system, we can just like make it more efficient and make it so cheap that everybody can pay for it. I mean, we're never going to, there's not that much profit to be taken out. I mean, it's like, it's like healthcare and so many other debates. There is some profit in the system, but the profit, you know, is more or less equal to the inefficiency that you'd get in a government, you know, control and managed system. So there's there's really no gains to be made because you're going to lose whatever whatever you get back in in basically low motivation and limited, you know, dedication to it. So yeah, the government, we want the government to subsidize connections. We we want reasonable parameters that correspond to the the uses, the application uses that we're subsidizing. You know, we want people to be able to go to school and go to work and get information and vote and find an appointment for their COVID vaccination. Do all those things. Great. And if you don't have the money, we'll pay for it. I mean, taxpayers will have, have always happily stepped up to that. Well, Richard, if this working remotely thing stays, you know, they're looking for a chairman of an agency here. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe you wouldn't have to leave Colorado. You could stay in the beautiful state and just Yeah, I don't this is more of a human political problem than a technical problem. If they had you the know, technical you problem, put, I'm sure you'd solve it for us. You ever put a technologist in charge of the FCC, I think so many heads would explode. It would <laughs> I'd like to see someone do that, though. Someone who's <laughs> in the appropriate age group. <laughs> right. You never know. Richard, thank you yeah. so much for coming right. back on so quickly because I just really needed your your thoughts on this. And, and I appreciate you being here today, my friend. Always good to talk to you. You've got the finger on the pulse of what's going on <laughs> in D.C. and you, you know the right questions to ask. All right. Well, thank you, Richard. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.